Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Paget, a physical therapist, and I serve as secretary of the DDSIG. I'm here today with Tara McIsaac, professor in the physical therapy department and director of research for the physical therapy department at Arizona School of Health Sciences at A.T. Still University. And Tara was on the nominating committee and chair of the DDSIG. So we are happy to have her back to spend some time with us for this podcast. So Tara, before we get started and really sort of dive into our topic for today, would you just introduce yourself a little bit and kind of tell us all the different hats you wear and what you do there at AT Still? Yeah, I've been here at AT Still since 2013. And so I am at this point professor in the physical therapy department. I teach in the neurology curriculum. So I teach the first year's neuroscience, and then I teach throughout some of the neuro rehab curriculum. As director of research, I also teach in the critical inquiry curriculum for the PT students, as well as um, mentor some of the faculty, the newer faculty in particular, in their research scholarly agenda. We also have a neuro residency here at AT Still, and I teach in the residency as well. And then the other hat I wear, well, a couple of other hats, I am doing quite a bit of research, most with the PT students during their capstones, and then some NIH-funded work. And we also have a pro bono clinic on campus, and so I have some clinic hours. In the pro bono clinic, it's a student-run clinic um, that we just started this past summer. So I have a lot of hats, and it's pretty fun. Well, that's exciting. So in the clinical work you do at the pro bono clinic, do you see all kinds of patients or do you specialize in certain areas? Well, since I am a degenerative disease specialist, when they get phone calls or intakes for degenerative disease, typically they do come to me. But in addition, I also see other neurology patients Yeah. in addition to the degenerative diseases. Yeah. Well, that sounds busy and fun. It is busy and fun. So what I was sort of hoping to start out with is to talk about a recent journal article that came out that you are an author on about um, decision-making for stratifying people in community exercise classes, people with Parkinson's disease. And um, near and dear to my heart, because I'm heavily involved in a Parkinson's disease community exercise program. And I I think it's, they're just building everywhere, you know, they're popping up. And I think that we need more guidance on sort of how to best serve this population in this capacity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm curious, kind of, how did you get involved in this research? And, you know, what kind of drives you to be involved in this kind of work? Well, it is, of course, near and dear to my heart as well, because I've really focused on Parkinson's disease for the last number of years, 15 to 20 years, actually, um, both clinically and research. And 
you know, even 15 years ago, several of us were talking about we really need to change from the kind of medical model of therapy and really include community-based exercises and community-based programming and kind of shift to a every six-month model for therapy and become partners with community instructors and community exercise. And this even started when I was teaching at Teachers College at Columbia University. And we would have conversations with not only PT, but OT and exercise physiologists and personal trainers and yoga instructors and really a whole gamut of movement instructors Mm -hmm. and trying to really think about where are each of our practice acts, if you will. I mean, not, not all those movement instructors have practice acts, but if they did, you know, what is each of our roles in helping our people with chronic diseases or degenerative diseases in particular to have some of those health behavior changes and really continue the benefits of physical therapy and how, what makes that the most efficient. So, you know, I've known Becky Farley for decades, actually. We uh, did our PhDs together at the University of Arizona. And so we started conversations way back then. With me coming back to Arizona, it gave us the opportunity to do some research collaborations together and to really look at, so that gym in particular and that clinic in particular has actually several hundred members that have been going to classes there, not only to PT sessions, but also to classes there for now it's over four years. So there was an opportunity there to really look at something research-wise and evidence to really start to try and pick into the evidence of what do community classes provide. Okay. So I'd like to just go back a couple of thoughts. Yes. One of the things I think is really cool about that sort of multidisciplinary approach that you're talking about when we're talking to not just other rehab professionals, but also athletic trainers, personal trainers, people out there in the gym is that ability for us to really utilize our knowledge and our license to its fullest capacity. How do we support those people in supporting those blocks of time in between our six-month sessions so that our patients are getting kind of the most that they can get in those six-month blocks. So I think that that's great. And it's exciting to hear that this kind of thinking has been going on for a long time. And now we're actually starting to cross that bridge and talk to those people and collaborate with them to bring that piece in. So This specific intervention was completed at a gym, you said, where they have several classes and a lot of people coming. Yeah. So there have been interventions that the paper that you were talking about, this one that we um, recently published, was not specifically looking at interventions. We used some intervention information But really, this paper is about how to make some decisions and what are the factors that go into our decisions as physical therapists about prescribing exercise. So this came out of kind of an issue that we've seen or that and that we have 
ourselves, I think all therapists working with this population have come across that if there's one class, then it's a whole range of different abilities of patients in the class. And it makes it very difficult instructing that one class to really optimize the challenge for everybody in the class. Right. So it like not a one size fits all. Uh huh. And so I'm curious how you did it. Like, cause this was a retrospective study. So specifically, what did you look at? Well, we went back to the chart. So essentially it was a chart review, basically a records mm-hmm. review. And so we went back and looked at the charts from this clinic. It's an integrated clinic with their gym and their classes and looked at the the members and we had criteria. So we were really looking at people that had an initial evaluation and then another consult a year later. We wanted to, you know, have some sort of consistency about attendance. So we excluded a number of either they had large gaps in their attendance or for some other reason weren't as consistent. You know, that was basically the the data set, if you will, Mm -hmm. so that we could really look at what are some of the characteristics of those people so we had to start someplace and we're, we're moving forward with a lot of other research and looking at one year data and two year data, et cetera. But, but this really was kind of looking at what did they look like on initial eval or so baseline and then retrospectively based on how they did for that year, how did the therapists decide on which exercise class to prescribe them to. Okay, so the gym already had, in this case, it was four levels of classes. That's right. Happening. And so if I was a therapist in that clinic and somebody with Parkinson's came to see me, I would say, wow, you know, we did all this testing. You need a little more exercise. I think this class would be great to you. And I'm going to put, I think I'm suggesting this class for you. And you send them to a specific one of these one, two, three, four classes. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then what you did is then you said, okay, so a year later, right? Because you have that data from my first initial eval with this person. And I decided where to send them, which class to send them to. Right. And then a year later, you look, you took the data and you sort of said, okay, like what, what were the factors that led Parm to push this person into that specific class? Yeah. I mean, the one year later didn't really matter. It wasn't so much that we had to wait to the one year point, but we decided to select people who were consistent attenders. Okay. So, cause you wanted to make sure that it was a good choice on my part that they attended and thrived in that class. Right. I mean, it might not have been based on your decision, but it might have been based on other factors for them. Since we're here in the Southwest, people sometimes live here for only six months of the year and then they go back to, let's right, say, right, Chicago right. for six months of the year. Right. Right. So those, that kind of thing, we wanted to at least look at kind of consistent attendance. Mm-hmm. So that's why it was a retrospective because ahead of time, you can't know what's going to be a consistent attendance. Right. So that was really what made it a retrospective. And then we mm-hmm. just looked at 
the baseline information and then did some predictions based on what were their outcome measure performance. So how did they perform on, on certain outcome measures, you know, like five times sit to stand, the floor transfer, three minute backwards walk, six minute walk test, and then gate speed in the 10 meter walk, and then the timed up and go. And so we looked at those and what their baseline performance was on those measures and which class they had been assigned to, not based on these cutoffs, because there were the cutoffs weren't, there were no cutoffs then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And because there's a whole lot more to take into account than just how they perform on these measures, right? Right. Now, are these measures done by the PT? Yes. In the clinic, not by the instructor who's leading the class or... That's right. It's all part of the intake assessment. And that's sort of standard in that clinic. So if somebody can do a three-minute backward walk test, I would do that. Yes. There, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so it's a kind of a standard battery that they do, Mm -hmm. in addition to other things. But this is kind of their core standard battery. Mm Mm-hmm. And so let's just, people are dying to know, let's just get to the punchline. Like what mattered? What what predicted it? (laughs) So we found that using all seven of the clinical measures and the age, duration of Parkinson's disease and Hone and Yar's scores and whether they had fallen in the previous six months or not, using all of those factors they predicted about 79% of the, how the therapist prescribed participants into the different classes. Mm-hmm. Now, there's the dis, uh, discussion about whether Hone and Yar either included or by itself is very predictive, and we found it really was not so. When we removed the Hone and Yar scores, the prediction dropped down to 74%. And when running the model just with Hone and Yar scores, it was really only about 41% predicting the ability to prescribe patients into the right classes. Mm-hmm. Now, since a lot of therapists in smaller communities or with fewer resources uh, is pretty common, we also then looked at what the prediction was if people used the fewest clinical measures, which we found were three-meter backwards walk, a floor transfer test, and the timed up and go at fast speed, and then also age and years of PD, this predicted their assignments with, you know, pretty good 74% prediction. Mm -hmm. So, and I just want to bring up one other thing. You know, we've talked a lot on this podcast to people and who are doing a lot of really great research and stuff that can be helpful and you know, ideally people can use Monday morning. And the more we talk to people, the more papers we look at, the more research and literature and the more stuff that comes out, we are just bombarded with outcome measures and different outcome measures and different sets of outcome measures for different things. I mean, now there's the core measure. We've had PD edge for a while. You know, there's certain things that if we're trying to consider the movement system, specific tasks that we want to look at. So it's really hard to kind of figure out like, how do I take all of this and, you know, make it effective 
Right. What's the most important and the most efficient? Mm-hmm. Right. So we pared down from those seven measures and really looked at what would be the fewest. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the floor transfer is a super good example of something that's functional and used in exercise classes, right? So it's really, I mean, I know in the program that I'm involved in, that's one of the things that like we train volunteers who help in the class. And that's one of the things that they're always asking about is like, I'm having a hard time helping these people off the floor. And what Mm -hmm. do you know about, you know, how well they transfer off the floor. And Mm -hmm. I think it's, I think it's a great one. I think it's, um, you know, really functional and gives us a lot of information for people that we're sending out to a community class. And then the community person's going to be like, okay, time to try a plank, you know, and they're getting them down on the floor. And then, you know, what if they can't get up? So, or easily get up or they don't have an adaptation and the, and the person doesn't know because they've never done it. So I think it's great to do, but again, it, I just am weary or leery, I guess, of adding more and more and more on one of the things I like about some of these too is, you know, when you have somebody come in and you're working with them, you're not sending them to a community exercise class after your first session. So th- these are also things that you can include later on. You know, if you're going to see them for a, a period of Four a weeks, few weeks, six weeks something, right, yeah. once or twice a week, then this is something that you can do later on too. As you're working with them, which which I think yeah, I mean, is great. Some of the more severely impacted folks, there are, uh, many of the classes they actually cannot really participate in because those classes require them to be able to get on and off the floor independently. Some other classes, like you say, they have attendee attendance there where they will help them onto the floor and off. So yeah, we we feel that's a it's a pretty important you know, functional assessment to really Mm -hmm. do. Also to help people, as I'm sure you work with, uh, to help people with their confidence, you know, and this population is a population that falls and they will end up on the floor at some point or another, sometimes every day and how to be comfortable with that and then getting back up. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's important. Yeah. So, you know, one of the other things that, is interesting to me because in the program that I work in, so I'm in a fairly small rural area. We don't have a huge population of people or ability to really support those people with say programs that have multiple levels of classes. Right. And so we actually end up figuring out being creative the way that physical therapists can be and, and exercise practitioners out there that are, you know, the personal trainers that are uh, leading these classes, we get fairly creative in putting together a group of exercises that's highly scalable, um, that can challenge everybody in different ways. And when we started develop, when we started growing our program, I was keeping an eye towards something like this, like we're going to need to start stratifying people. What we found was that the people don't want to be stratified. They don't want to be separated. Mm. And so one of my questions is in a gym situation or program like this, and some, somebody is in a class and then at what point do you say to them, now you've, you have to go to the lower level class. I mean, that's a hard, those are, those are difficult conversations. And then taking that person away from the people they have been exercising with 
I'm just curious sort of how that goes down in that. You're right. Those are difficult conversations. One uh, way that that happens, there's a Parkinson-specific wellness center here, not too far from A.T. Still University. And I go down there and I also do some collaborations with them. Their classes are all in the same area as well. And so a person in class level one can see and will observe people in the other classes. So it's not that they're even separated when they're doing their different class levels. Sometimes those classes will be going on at the same time. And so they do actually know each other. And and these gyms and wellness centers, they really become very much support group networks for a lot of these folks. And so that can ease a little bit of their, I mean, I'm thinking of one fellow in particular, I've been seeing him for probably six years and he has kind of gone to several of the levels of classes. And his last comment to me was, well, you know, while I could take it as a demotion and he kind of laughed and he said, really, it's what I need right now. And he also knows all of the people that were in that lower group as well. Mm -hmm. So when there's a, a longevity to the group, which in both of these wellness centers, there has been, I think that goes much easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause there are people that they knew ahead of them that moved right. to that class. Yeah. Right. But you're right. Those are difficult conversations to have. Yeah. And it's been interesting for us because we've, we have, figured out a way to do it, a lot of which is through volunteer support. Mm -hmm. And that support group aspect of it that you talk about, I think is huge. You know, the social cohesion that happens mm -hmm. and the way that they relate to each other, that you cannot, there, there is nothing. There's nothing like another person going through the same thing that you're going through. Right. We right. can't and, yeah. emulate that in any way. That's right. That's right. And we as therapists can't, or even class instructors, we're on the outside of that as well. Right. Yeah. yeah. 100%. And, and I think we need to realize that and, and realize that we can't do everything for people. And so how can we support these kinds of programs to the mm -hmm. best of our ability to keep them going? I think the biggest key is not really so much uh, the interactions with the patients, because that that kind of happens pretty easily. But it's really how do we build those networks with the other professionals? Because mm -hmm. years past, it became very much of this little kind of territorial, you know, argument type of thing. And I like to think that that is disappearing and that there's much more comfort level at having these conversations with movement professionals in other professions and collaborating and mm -hmm. saying, wow, well, this is what we can provide. And what can you provide? You know, really having some of those conversations. I think that's key. Yeah. Breaking down those barriers. The other thing that I've realized is like, we have a certain amount of knowledge about the disease process and what's going on and in the body and the movement system. And, and I think that that's really valuable for those folks. And there's a lot of good resources and We'll put some on our show notes, but we also come with our lens and our protective 
uniqueness and our ability, you know, the people in our program, when they went out to the community exercise guy, and he's just like, yeah, they're athletes, just like everyone else. And he, he treats them just like everyone else. And they love it. And they, you know, they said to us, they're like, we love you guys, but don't make us come back. This guy is like really pushing us in a way that you didn't. And I was like, really? But I thought we were so good. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I think it's really important to not take those kinds of things personally. Yeah. And to really, you know, that we as professionals elevate each other and we keep learning from each other and we keep pushing each other. Right. Totally. And also like, I know, I know that I'm not the right person. Like I cannot completely get rid of my protective fear, knowing where that person's going to end up. And I, I know that I'm better off sending them out to this other person to exercise on a more regular basis than they're going to do with me, you know, because that's their job. Right. For us, it really comes down to time. Yeah. And and money, right? Like, yeah. I mean, in our clinic, it's a pro bono clinic. So yeah, but you just can't, and one-on-one PT, you just can't provide the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, there is also the, you know, talking of finances, and this comes up with patients that I see and I'm evaluating and then refer them to or prescribe them to different exercise community exercise classes. It always comes up about, well, does insurance cover that? Right. And it's like, well, no, mostly. I mean, there are some insurances that will either support or pay for gym memberships right to these specialized wellness centers. I don't know is how that's happened yet, but I could certainly see that happening. And the way that might happen would be with evidence that we publish that these community based programs at this wellness center, this gym for $45 a month, and you can take unlimited classes makes a difference in their function. Right. Yeah, I think that I think that's helpful. You know, I also think for people that have the resources, for any of us, our insurance doesn't cover that stuff. So, you know, if we want to join a gym, we pay and having a little bit of skin in the game, I think sometimes can be good. And really, for a a lot of programs that I've had the, you know, privilege of either working with or hearing about, have some means for people that can't afford it, some kind of scholarship. Mm -hmm. You know, and I also find that people in the programs that have resources are willing, and we, we've had several people who have said, I'm willing to pay more to support somebody if they can't afford it mm-hmm. because it's that it's been that good for me that I want it available to other people. Yeah, yeah, that's great. But the thing is, you then need the infrastructure to capitalize on that, which, right. you know, can be tricky. So one of the interesting things you just said is that when you're seeing somebody and you're referring to these community programs, so that to me means that you have to have a really good sense of what's out there in the community for these programs. And when you're like in this situation, the gym and the clinic are combined. And so when you're sending somebody to a stratified class, I'm guessing the therapists know what goes on in those classes really well, but what about this situation where you don't like, you know, could you apply some of the principles that you talk about in this paper to sending somebody out to a yoga class or a dance class or boxing class? 
Absolutely. And so, like you mentioned, the facility, the gym and clinic integrated that was in this article, that was all in one site. So yes, you're right. Uh, The therapist there had knowledge, very intimate knowledge of of the classes. When I see patients here, we're in a whole different city. We're about 150 miles away from, from that particular site. Here, I do refer them out to wellness centers where there isn't on-site physical therapists, at least at this point. Mm-hmm. And so it is very important to take the time and to go visit all these different places, whether it's a wellness center that's Parkinson-specific or whether it's a yoga class or whether it's you know, a Zumba class or at the YMCA or, or any of those to really, and, and I tell my students that, and I really challenge them, you need to explore and know the exercise options in your community. You need to go visit, you need to make friends, you need to give your card to them, you need to start some back and forth conversations so that you can prescribe. Mm-hmm. And so we really push that actually quite hard here. Yeah. And then I modeled that in our pro bono clinic, right. the student run clinic. So, so that's what we do is we go out and we talk to different classes. Yeah. And, you know, depending on where you are, like where I am is fairly, like I said, small and rural. It's pretty easy to know all of the local players and programs and things that are out there. Mm-hmm. Cause there, we do have a few, Uh, But I would think if you were in a major city, you know, it might be a tougher thing. Like if you were in still at teacher's college, it might be a a tougher thing to visit a lot. of. It is tough. And I mean, Phoenix is a pretty big area. Mm -hmm. Phoenix is one of the major cities. So, yeah, it is. It is a challenge, but it's an important challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One of the other things that you guys talked about in this paper that I found interesting was the communication piece that could happen. And we in our community exercise program have struggled with that. And how do we communicate to the community gym or the community coach about this patient without violating HIPAA? Yeah, it can be a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I prefer to do face-to-face So oftentimes when I'm seeing somebody here in our clinic on campus and we're getting near what I would call discharge, you know, discharge of that bout of therapy, usually it's at least a couple times, sometimes more depending on the person, where it's sort of discharge planning where I will go out to their fitness center. If they don't have one, that starts on it initial evaluation, I say, you know, do you have a gym that you go to? Well, no. And then we discuss that. And and I already at initial eval say, we're going to work towards on discharge. By the time it comes before discharge, you'll have a community gym and I will go out there with you and we will have a conversation with them together. And it's, it's as part of our therapy session. And sometimes it's more than one time. And I did that even 15 and 20 years ago with my own private practice. And it was paid. It was, you know, billable and paid for Hmm. as an outpatient. Wow. I haven't heard of anybody doing that. So that's cool. And so then. Let me just interject some. So I always tell the patient, go to your gym and talk to who's there. And different gyms have different protocols and different 
procedures that they want to go to. Some are very open and say, oh, absolutely, come on in, no problem. Others will say, well, yes, but we have to have you sign some, you know, consents and that's fine. That's understandable for insurance and whatnot. And others will say, no, we actually have our own personal trainers and we have a policy. We don't let anybody else come in. And I'm like, okay. And so I've worked actually with all three of those recently, those situations here. And with the one that said, no, we don't let anybody come in. We actually did still show up with the patient in their lobby and spoke with the head personal trainer and, you know, discussed. So with the patient there, patient was then discussing with the personal trainer and the personal trainer said, well, you know, we could provide at a cost some personal training sessions. And he said, I don't have the money for that, you know? And so we had a very frank conversation and it actually went really well. And I gave my card to the head personal trainer and I said, you know, it, I'm assuming that if you see anybody in here with unsafe practices, you would say something. (laughs) And of course he said, oh yeah, yeah, of course. And I said, well, I would hope you would do that and feel free to talk with, you know, the patient, I used his name, and you can also, uh, with his approval, call me as well. And so we can continue to work together. So kind of calling things as they are, with the patient there can really, I think, help facilitate some forward movement. That's not threatening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that address what you were talking about? Yeah. Yeah. And, but like I said, I, I hadn't heard of anybody sort of doing that and being paid. I mean, our pro bono clinic is pro bono, but I had done that prior. So Tara, we always like to ask people who are busy like you, Uh, What you like to do when you take a little bit of time off? Any hobbies? Uh, I do. I have several hobbies. Um, I like to go horseback riding, actually. Um, I like to go biking and running. And I love to be with my dog. She is an amazing frisbee player. Far better than me. (laughs) That's fun. So is there, Tara, is there anything else that, you really wanted to say that we didn't get to or? No, I just am so excited that now there are community exercise programs for people with Parkinson's. I just am so excited about that. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I, you know, there's enough that people can't go to everything they want to go to. Right. Which is, is great. I think the more that we can really educate our PT students, you know, of course that's my job. So really trying to get PT students thinking about that, not just with people with Parkinson's, but, you know, in general. Yeah. Um, And certainly people with chronic issues. Yeah. Here we use students as volunteers and in our classes, you know, we offer it up and we take only a certain number. And, but one of the most rewarding things is like after they graduate two or three years later, we get the email I want to start an exercise class like uh, like awesome. you guys have. And can you help me? And that that's is like, oh, that's like the best, you know, like, like we've arrived. We're spreading the love. Yep. You've got your therapy mom halo on. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, Tara, thank you so much for chatting with us tonight. I think that this is a topic that if it's near and dear to us, I think it's near and dear to a lot of our listeners. I think people are really going to learn a lot and enjoy 
the information and we will certainly put a link to this article on the website or in our show notes so that people can check it out as well. Great. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you. All right. And we'll have you back. We, there's a ton of stuff that we didn't even talk about, like dual task. Holy cow. So right. I know we, right. at some point we'd love to talk to you about that stuff too. <laughs> Great. Wonderful. This podcast was produced by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org. And check us out on Facebook. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend or two. This podcast was edited by Sarah Crandall. Special thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. Yeah, we'll we'll cut out the pause. (laughs) I mean, not that you're not working now. (laughs) No, I just sit on the couch and he's on. I try not to say tonight, but whatever. <laughs> you always say it. I always, it'll, it'll slip in there this evening. So I, that makes me a little nervous. Yeah. Cause I've done <laughs> interviews before where there's been at least an outline or questions. And so it's like. Time's just I, a loose I, cannon. That's what I, we got. <laughs>